0: up this hour. We're joined by writer and speaker Catherine McNeil. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm, but he is out gallivanting, as the kids say, with his family. But fret not, he'll be back mid next week, but in his absence, we have a whole slew of really wonderful, special guest hosts. Before we get to that, though, a couple of particulars. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post our articles, but you can send us a message if you have ideas for future shows or suggestions or interview uh, ideas. Any of that is fair game on the Facebook page. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is, you get podcasts, if you wouldn't mind, subscribing rating and reviewing all of that does really help us out a whole ton and i am absolutely thrilled to have for the entire hour joining us again Catherine mcneil welcome back to the show friend
1: thank you so much i'm happy to be here
0: thanks for taking the time before we kind of dive into it a little bit would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself again to our audience
1: Absolutely. I'd love to. Hello, audience. Uh, My name is Catherine McNeil. Like Ian said, I am a writer, author, and speaker. Um, My two books are both with Nav Press. One of them is called Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline, and the second is called All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World. Um, I am also a mother, so I am parenting during a pandemic, which Mm -hmm. I think many people can relate to. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm an avid gardener. My family has an enormous garden. So that keeps me busy during this time of year, especially. And uh, that's that's a little bit about me.
0: That's great. I I think you're right. I think that's a perfect setup because a lot of people are experiencing a completely new perspective on parenting amidst, you know, it's kind of played out, but the word unprecedented, I think still kind of applies. Could you talk to us a little bit more about about that book and and your perspectives on parenting and maybe even how it's changed since that book was published a few years ago?
1: Long Days of Small Things. Absolutely. Yes. I wrote this book um, when my three children were toddlers and preschoolers, and I kept hearing parents around me, especially mothers, uh, bemoaning and grieving the fact that there was no time or space in their life to pursue Mm -hmm. a spiritual life. Um, And I certainly could relate to that. Uh, It's incredible the amount of drain on someone's energy a handful of toddlers and preschoolers can be. There's not, if we think of our spiritual lives as a quiet time, primarily, there is no quiet or time in that stage of life, even at three o'clock in the morning. If I were to wake up at three o'clock in the morning, there's probably someone trying to crawl into bed with me. So um But you know, God invented families and parents and babies, and I felt pretty confident that God was not taken aback by the demands of that season, Mm. and that God was not sort of waiting around for us to progress into a different developmental stage before He was willing to meet with us and form us. And Mm. as I dug into it, I realized that However, we might talk about God. God is the creator. God is the nurturer. God is the one who provides the breath of life and uh, doesn't primarily meet us in ideas, but actually took on a body and became a person, became a baby, uh, was born. Um, So I use this book to explore how these very very human, very physical, very body-centered experiences that we have as parents can actually not keep us from understanding God and God's creation and God's redemption and God's plan, Mm. um, but actually open our eyes and open doors for us to step into it with our whole bodies, with our whole selves. Mm. Um, And it is geared towards mothers, but I've heard from fathers grandparents even non-parents who are caregivers or just enjoy reading a little bit of practical theology and spiritual formation that it that it's been helpful to them and as far as this time um (laughs) my children are now school age i have two middle schoolers one elementary and uh our our rhythms have gone back to those old days (laughs) in many ways uh the kids and I and my husband have been under the same roof for a very, very long time. So (laughs) a good time to revisit that. that Is
0: that what it felt like? (laughs) Have you like revisited some of those principles and thought, okay, I can't, it's weird that I wrote these words, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this in a new light now, kind of given our current circumstances.
1: Absolutely. You know, what's been really cool is I've had, a number of times when readers have reached out to me and said, I feel God is compelling me to remind you of what you wrote in this book on page 46, wow. you know, or whatever. Wow. Um, reminding you, reminding myself that God is here in the chaos, in the seasons where we're pouring ourselves out, so entirely that there's not time to take a breath, that there's not time to look around and see where the fruit is hmm. um, and just trust that in the unrelenting service and nurturing, God is present and is forming something that we can't see.
0: Yeah. And you use that word forming or formation a couple of times, which I think is really, really key. But I imagine for some people, that's maybe a brand new thought. They've made, They've never really maybe thought about parenting as formation, or at the very least, they think of like, oh, yeah, it's my job to form this mm-hmm. child that I've been entrusted to, but maybe never consider that, oh, this whole thing is also forming me in some kind of really beautiful, subtle ways. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, sure.
1: Yes. Uh, I am not someone who deals well with chaos. So mm. I am not, I'm not the parent who has the 12-step program that I implement very carefully every day. I mostly am just trying to survive.
0: <laughs> same, same. But
1: <laughs> I do recognize that just being taken to the end of myself in such an extreme way every day as a parent. And now during the season, a parent who's working from home um, while parenting always um, being taken to the end of ourselves is what spiritual practices are meant to do. You know, if we mm-hmm. were to, for example, to enter into a period of fasting, Part of the goal is to come to the end of ourselves where we have to rely on God and we realize where our idols are, where our cravings are, and mm. refocus ourselves on the work that God is doing in us mm. through this experience in our bodies, just to give one example. And I find that parenting forms me in a very similar way because the, the chaos, the, the needs, um, the nurture, the service, the sacrifice... Are joyful. Hmm. But they also bring me to the end of myself where I have to say, uh, wow, God, it's it's you from here on out because yeah. I've been here at the end of my rope for a while.
0: Right, right. That that phrase, the end of yourself, most certainly describes parenting for a lot of people. And I know even for me being kind of new word to this parenting thing, certain characteristics would crop back up that I, I thought I had long dealt with. Yeah. And there's something about, like you're saying, the 3 a.m. scream fest, like uh-huh. this, this other version of myself slowly emerges. You're like, oh, I thought I really kind of took care of that. It, that's been really humbling the last couple of years to kind of re, to have to face those things down again and say, OK, there's, there's still a lot more work to be done here. And at, we're almost done with time for this particular segment, but I would love for you to take like the last minute or so. And just offer a word of encouragement to a parent that's listening right now, regardless of the age of their kids. Would you just speak, I don't know, some some life or, or joy or purpose to them?
1: Oh, I would love to. Um, mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, whoever you are, I just want you to remember that uh, God is the creator and he is the nurturer and the sustainer. And God is with you in this season that everything you do, it does not need to be perfect, uh, mm-hmm. but you are pouring out life. You are partnering with God in putting out, uh, the things that your children need. Hmm. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It's just one day at a time. God is feeding you and God is feeding your children.
0: That's so good. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Catherine McNeil. She's my guest for the entire hour and the author of All Shall Be Well and Long Days of Small Things. She's sticking around for the rest of the hour. We're going to talk parenting and writing and formation. And I love this subtitle of her newest book, uh, God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World. I think a lot of us probably feel that way right now. So we're going to ask her some more questions about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is normally on the other side of this microphone, but he's on vacation with his family, living it up. I'm assuming he's not responding to emails or texts, which is good on him. But uh, he'll be back mid-next week. In his absence, we have a whole smattering of really wonderful special guests. Before we continue our conversation with Catherine Neal, real briefly, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160Hope.com slash The Common Good and wherever it is you get your podcast, We mentioned earlier, Catherine's not only a writer and an author and a speaker, uh, but she's a mom and she's been kind of sharing some of her own struggles with regards to this pandemic, this reality that uniquely we're all facing to some degree. And uh, her most recent book is, is almost a prophetic kind of title in my mind, All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World. Before we kind of get into the weeds a little bit, just give us a 30,000-foot perspective on what that book was about.
1: Well, I'd love to do that. Uh, This book is actually structured around the seasons. It starts in the earliest days of spring um, where we're not actually sure, at least where I live Hmm. here in the Midwest, we're not actually sure it's going to come. And then it moves through a summer and fall and then winter and spoiler. It does end back in spring again in resurrection. Yeah. So now that I've given the whole thing away, (laughs) um, But while it's structured that way, the chapters themselves are using these everyday physical experiences of going through the seasons and cycles that God created to realize that something similar is happening in our own spirits, and our own bodies, as we're searching for hope, or uh, we are exhausted, or we're going through a season of darkness, or we're walking through a wilderness, or maybe we're overwhelmed by how much abundance and life there is, hmm. and how exhausting yet fulfilling and beautiful that can be, and how that whole cycle that we walk through Every day, every year can point us to God and what God is doing in the world.
0: hmm and what, and what what do you find to be the most difficult part in reality like right now, because I know that you're you're a part of a community, and I'm sure that people are sharing their lives with you the the big and the small, the beautiful and the ugly like what do you what do you find to be some of the biggest hurdles to actually like seeing God's presence at work in whatever season we find ourselves in?
1: Yeah, that's, that's such an important question. I, you know, our physical reality right now is summer. We are in those days where it's hot and it's humid and yeah, everything is green and growing. Um, but I think our spiritual and our social reality right now is much more wilderness. You know, right. we entered into this season of uncertainty um, and a, so much loss. Uh, um, some people dealing with their own physical loss with death. Uh, loss of jobs or income or economic security, also just loss of any ability to plan or expect that things are going to go in any way, the way we expected. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I do think that that is where we struggle the most is when we become so aware of how little control we have over our own lives, over our, our family's expectations, over, over what's going to come, and hmm. uh, it's easy for us, I think, to celebrate. It's harder for us to lament and to trust God to see us through the entire period of darkness.
0: Right. Um,
1: but you know, God created both the day and the night. Right. Um, he created both the spring and the fall and the winter. And I, I have been grateful to be forced through this this writing that I do to meditate on on endurance and on trusting god even in a dark season that goes far far longer than anyone was hoping that it would go
0: right right yeah i i was listening to a conversation recently it was with um i forget his name but it was some rabbi and he was talking about how you know the human experience tends to really exist in one of three categories uh slavery wilderness promised land
1: hmm. and, and he was
0: saying in the united states Y'all assume that promised land is like eighty five percent of the narrative. It's not. He's like the yeah. vast majority of us live in wilderness and wandering far longer than we realize or that we would actually like. And I think what one of the things your book pretty beautifully does was create categories and handles and, and help illuminate some of what is a reality that we don't know how to articulate, right? Like people I imagine yes. would read and go, That's that's what I'm feeling. That's what I'm experiencing. And it's strange now you know, a year later after it was released to be in a global pandemic. I'm I'm wondering what suggestions would you give to people who are hearing you and they're saying, yes, I, I really do struggle with lament. I struggle with wilderness. I don't even know where to begin with that. What, what like advice or coaching mm-hmm. would you give to that person?
1: Well, I mean, You know, you set me up. I have to at least advise them to pick up a copy of All Shall Be Well. Um, But (laughs) I think as Americans, our public liturgies are all based around celebration. You know, we want to go right from Thanksgiving to Christmas to New Year's to Super Bowl Sunday. And we skip over all the the labor, the grieving, um, the the troubles, the, right. we want to overlook that. And if, if we are forced to look at it, we want to find someone to blame. And we want to say, you know, something's wrong. This is not my expectation of moving from celebration to celebration. And so I think my advice, you know, advice is hard to give during a time of crisis. Yeah. But, right. Um, is to just pour out your heart, honestly, both to yourself, be honest with yourself, because we lie to ourselves first and foremost. Right. And then pour out your heart to God in honesty and say, you know, I don't have the tools to lament, to know how to understand God's goodness during a season of sustained grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and seek for that in the Bible. The Bible is full of Psalms that are are in grief. You know, the people in the Bible were never the people who were on top of the world. You know, like the rabbi was saying that you quoted, they were, they moved from slavery to the wilderness. And even once they got to the promised land, they were very quickly sent back into exile. And I've been telling my kids again and again during the past few months, um, as they encounter loss after loss, that we are standing on the shoulders of thousands of years of people who suffered greatly and yet found that God was faithful. And mm. they said, this has been such a profound understanding that in the midst of my decades of suffering, God was near and present and faithful. And they passed it on to the next generation who found the same.
2: Mm.
1: And I think this is an invitation. I'm not one to find the silver linings. I think we do need to say there is grief and loss here yeah, and yeah. make room for that. But I, it is an invitation also for us to realize that the Christian story has always been told by people who suffered but found something even greater, something even more beautiful. And that was God's faithfulness right there with them.
0: Oh, that's so good. I, I was just listening to a homily from a, a Franciscan priest who was talking about what Christianity was like, you know, pre-313 with uh, Constantine and the Edict of Milan. He's like, we they literally went from being— the bottom of the barrel to really the Kings and rulers and now the entire army, not, you know, just 75 years later was Christians. And this idea that in a lot of ways we've lost the narrative understanding that, yeah, we are, we are sojourners We're people, you know, of, of suffering and that much of the early church was led by people of the lowest class in every, every definition of the word and how often we, you know, in sort of our modern, like you were saying, constant victory, constant celebration. We're constantly the winners. <laughs> we're on top. Is it possible that maybe, maybe, just maybe we're missing some of the main fundamental themes of what it means to be a Christ follower, which yeah. I, I think your book does wonderfully. I think it, it holds intention really, really well. And so I, I have probably 17 more questions about that. We'll see how, <laughs> okay. much, how much we can fit in in uh, two more segments. But that other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Catherine McNeil, author of a couple of really wonderful books. One's called All Shall Be Well. The other one's called Long Days of Small Things. And she's sticking around with us for two more segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is still my co-host, but he has gone on vacation. He'll be back on Wednesday, I believe. I've been saying this like I'm guessing every time. I have a calendar. I could look it up. And he'll be back mid next week. Sometime he's on vacation with his family. Real briefly, though, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And you guessed it. We have a podcast, and I really do mean it. Uh, any subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that does help us out a whole ton. And we're super grateful for those of you who have done that. Catherine McNeil is a return guest, which give you just a little bit of a hint of how much we like her on the show. She's written two books so far, wink, wink. Uh, one of them is called All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World. The other is called Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline. And one of the things, Catherine, that that you were mentioning that I love talking about is how, yeah, we don't in a in a modern Western post enlightenment context we don't really know what to do with lament and a lot of our songs are you know always upbeat and victorious but you yeah. know more, more than a third of the psalms are psalms of lament that's like a that's like a hobby horse of mine what I want to ask you is almost the binary of that because your book is also about interacting with God in the midst of abundance. Yeah. I I find that we also don't really know how to do that very well. And I and I have not really thought about that a whole lot until our first interview with you. So could you speak a little bit more to to that component of the book?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, I find uh you know, I don't know all things, but my experience of life <laughs> is that the hard and the wonderful happen simultaneously. We get mm. the pain and the abundance at the same time. Um And and that causes us a lot of cognitive dissonance and we don't really know what to do about it. But just taking this season, for example, I have been in the house basically with my three children um, while trying to work from home and trying to school them from home for (laughs) four and a half months. And so depending on how you look at that, that has been, it has truly been a struggle for all of us. But also, it's this incredible blessing of being able to invest in my 14 and 11 and 9-year-olds in a way that I rarely get a chance to do at this age and in this stage. Mm -hmm. And a chance to learn about them and a chance for them to learn about me and for us to spend an incredible amount of quality time. And so somehow both the abundance and the struggle are the same thing. And Mm -hmm. I think that happens to us more often than we think. You know, we go on vacation, you know, maybe Brian is experiencing this right now. It sounds so great. It looks nice on Instagram. Right. right. But, you know, it's always a little bit, you know, not quite what we were hoping. There's there's tension or we get lost or, you know, (laughs) uh we don't know what to do with finding both the struggle and the beauty in the same package.
0: Right. Right. Um,
1: But they come in the same package.
0: Hmm. You know, one of the things—I don't know if you have this with your husband. My wife and I—we've established a look when we're about two hours into a vacation, and, <laughs> and the kids are having like a total meltdown. And the look just simply says, "What were we thinking? Like, why? We, <laughs> why? Why do we think this would be a good idea?" But then, right—you're exactly right. You look back and you think, "Man, even those really tough seasons were like not only weirdly formative, but also exceptionally beautiful." And there are things you you kind of hold on to even like the big snafus we have at our our wedding that seemed catastrophic at the time. You look back and go, Oh, that's hilarious. Now, you know, (laughs) uh, that's hard to have that perspective. And I I would love to know now because we've, we've sort of beat around the bush a little bit. We've mentioned the pandemic and quarantine and all that, but one of the things, and you're a great follow on Twitter too, by the way, for this reason, I would love to know some of your thoughts regarding the pandemic and loving our neighbor and Mm -hmm. whether or not, you know, everyone's debating about schools reopening, all of that. I would just love to hear some of your thoughts about all of that stuff.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, it's such a hard such a hard buffet of decisions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. things facing us. Um, you know, on the one hand with schools opening, I'm kinda like, you know, take all my children, like let's just let's right. just get them out of the house for a while. But on the other hand, you know, you look at the the rising numbers in our communities and realize that we have to consider the safety of, of everybody. And it's not, I think as Americans, we tend to say, um, you know, I'm going to draw this boundary line around me and mine. And it is my job to defend this boundary line um, from the community outside who may be trying to encroach on my rights or my property. Um, And that is a, you know, that is the American way. And I'm not going to, criticize it. Hmm. But as Christians, I don't think that can be our posture. I think as Christians, you know, God says, God invited us to consider what it means to follow him through the frame of loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And he wasn't primarily meaning that Catherine needs to love Alicia, my next door neighbor, the way I love Catherine he was speaking collectively that mm. I need to care for my community in similar ways to how I care for my own family. Mm. And um, that is not something that we've explored a lot. I don't think as Christian communities, what would it look like if we approached some of these conversations, not from a perspective of how can I defend what's mine, but how can I care for everyone who will be impacted by this? Mm. Um, I, Still don't have any answers,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I would love for our posture to change in the conversation.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I, I came across uh Galatians 5. I, I really have been convicted by Galatians a lot lately,
1: hmm. and
0: I for some reason I felt compelled to read it in the message translation in verse 13 like knocked me off my chair. He said, it's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want and yeah. to destroy your freedom. Rather use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. And I thought, gosh, if a verse, if a verse ever just like transcended <laughs> like current realities, that was one of them. Why why do you think that there is this sort of like insatiable demand, typically under the banner of freedom, especially for Christ followers, to do whatever they, they want. Like, why do you, why do you think we find that pairing so often?
1: Oh man. Well, we certainly do. I, I know exactly the verse you're referring to. when you were mentioning me on Twitter a few months ago. I tweeted that verse, paraphrasing it here. Um, hmm. Many things are beneficial for me, but, or no, many things are lawful for me, but not many are beneficial. Um, we should not look to do what's best for ourselves, but what is best for others. Hmm. And I, I did tweet that out and I said, boy, I think this is our life verse for 2020, all of us collectively. (laughs) Um, and that has gotten a lot of, a lot of likes and shares even months later. Hmm. Um, we do, you know, I think that, it has become an idol for us um, to stand on our to stand our ground and say, "This is lawful for me. You can't stop me from doing it." Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have not been discipled away from that idol to say, "Yes, that is my right as an American, but my calling as a Christian—the cost that I counted before mm-hmm. I picked up my cross to follow Jesus." is to deeply, deeply marinate in the reality that all things are lawful for me, but they are not beneficial. That my job is not to look to my own good, but also to the good of others. Hmm. Um, Yeah. And like I said, that doesn't, necessarily lead to easier, obvious answers when the questions are so challenging as they are now. Yeah. Um, But it should at least impact the tone of voice that we use. Right. As we have those conversations.
0: I love, I love that idea of drawing tension between our rights and our calling. I think that's, that's really significant. And you use the word disciple, right? Which is another, it's another formation word. How, How are we being formed toward or away from Mm-hmm. Certain behaviors or certain ways of thinking and seeing the world, which is, I think I'm going to go there in our last segment coming up next with Catherine McNeil. If you're just joining us, by the way, she's the author of two books, All Shall Be Well and Long Days of Small Things are both wonderful. I highly recommend picking them up. And she's going to stick around with us for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is normally here. Don't worry. You can hear his smoky, sultry voice mid next week. He'll be returning from vacation with his family. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. That's enough. You hear me say it all the time. We'll just leave it there. But I'm joined all hour, and this is our last segment, with Catherine McNeil. She's the author of All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World, as well as Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline, but I also know a little birdie told me, I hate that expression, by the way, uh, you told me uh, that you are working on a third book that is uh, set to come out a, wa- a ways away from here. But I- I'd love to know whatever it is you're allowed to tell us about that book.
1: Oh, well, thanks for asking. I would love to. Uh, yes, I am working with the th- on... A third book, once again, published by Nav Press. Right. Um, this book will not be coming out until early 2022, which is a long time from now. But mm-hmm. um, the overall theme of the book is how Jesus invites us as his followers um, to live out of a posture of love rather than a posture of fear. Hmm. And in fact, even to embrace this love that conquers fear. Um, And then I look specifically at what that looks like or what that could look like for followers of Christ today in our time and place.
0: Hmm. Could Could you give like an example of what living out of a posture of fear looks like in your opinion?
1: Oh, wow. Sure. Well, I do think that we tend to binge on fear, you know, we, it is, it is not necessarily a bad thing. We, if my toddlers that I spoke of earlier in the hour, um, did not experience fear, they would not still be alive. (laughs) You know, I, (laughs) I needed them to realize how terrifying it was to touch a hot stove or run into the street or jump into a pool pretty early on. (laughs) Um, so I think fear is actually a important, aspect of how we're made it's our friend hmm. but um, when we don't put it in its proper place we can start to filter all the information that we receive through a, a filter of fear and then we start making decisions based on self-preservation um, and can actually begin to create the thing that we're afraid of and mm. um, i think we see that playing out all the time in our social issues um, in our communities, in our families, in our own, in our own mindsets. Uh, definitely we're seeing it these days, uh, with the virus, the pandemic, um, a lot of the other issues around race and social issues that are happening. And I think Jesus invites his followers to say, you know, there are some real dangers out there. Mm -hmm. Um, but Jesus was resurrected. God has conquered death. Um, Death can no longer be a threat to us because um, we have already died with Christ and been raised with him. And so we can now follow Jesus without constantly asking ourselves, how do I preserve myself? Because Mm -hmm. we are set free to love and um, as I said before, that does not result in any easy answers or any obvious solutions. But when I look at the early church, um, you were talking about Galatians a minute ago. I've been enamored by Ephesians. Hmm. Paul is writing this letter, and he's in prison, and he's talking to people who live in a society that is full of both governmental and religious powers that rule everything with a very terrifying hand. Right. Um, and yet he keeps breaking out into song, like you can even hear him as he writes, like his sentences go long, and he starts to bring up a point And before you know it, he's just praising Jesus and glorifying God and celebrating what is happening in the Christian community. And I long for us to be known that way today, yeah. not because we don't have problems, not because we are hiding ourselves from these truly fearful things, right? but because we are enamored by what God is doing and mm. how Jesus has set us free. And we are living out of that.
0: Hmm. That's so good. I, I hope what I'm about to say next isn't creepy, but here goes. Uh, you tweeted a day or two ago. I'll just read it. You said uh, my social media feeds are full of hand wringing about the virus fear mongering in the media, and I'm not hearing any of it. But I also haven't watched TV since 1995, so I probably just miss <laughs> it. If you're sick of fear mongering, I recommend staying informed via data and not, quote, the news. And everything that you were just saying, too, about this culture of fear, And do, do you find some of that? as a, as a corollary that like, man, we're just obsessed and we're reading and tweeting and posting everything all the time. Yeah. Of course that's going to result in some level of fear. I'd love to know more about that a little bit and maybe toss in why you haven't watched TV. since
1: <laughs> Well, let's be clear. I do watch Netflix. Right. Um, <laughs> <Of> course, obviously <laughs> not yeah. like I haven't been entertained, but <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, We do just keep tuning in for the things that make us anxious. And so we need an update, Hmm. whether that's an encroaching storm or a group of people that we feel um, instead of seeing them as neighbors or even people in need, we have come to see them as someone who a group of people who are going to challenge our way of life or cause some sort of difficulty for us. We keep tuning in to hear mm. the the latest update on, on where this danger is progressing and how close it is to us now. Mm. And we do have access to that through the cable, through the internet, 24 hours a day. And I don't know that it's been good for our souls to have unfettered access to fearful ideas right. constantly. Right. Um. Not because the world is a safe place. You know, Jesus, our leader, was crucified publicly and intentionally
2: mm-hmm.
1: as, a, as a lesson for his followers. Right. But uh, we have the Holy Spirit and we have the resurrected Lord who we are following. Yeah. And um, I pray that we will learn to follow Jesus in a time of unsafety mm. with, with joy
0: mm. and
1: not paralyzed with fear.
0: Right, right. I mean, I love what you said too about like Jesus, our leader, our Lord. I heard a pastor years ago say he's he's Lord, not Lord elect. It's not like hmm. Lord sometime in the future, you know, and I think of like Irenaeus who said the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Like the world, the empire thinks, man, if we could just crush this or stomp this out, little do they know, which is what I think you were saying at the beginning of the hour about our need to suffer well, to, to interact with lament and grief in a way that's like formed by the holy spirit and the gospels and what it means to live a christo-formed community. I think that's amazing. I I would love I would love for you just to take the last minute or so that we have together and just pastor our people a little bit. Just mm-hmm. give give them a word of encouragement or challenge in the midst of a season that a lot of us don't know what to do with. Would you just would you just take a moment to shepherd us a little bit?
1: Oh, I would love to. That would be an honor. Well, wherever you are listening to this, whether it's the radio or a podcast, you're in your office or your kitchen or your car, I just want to assure you, I have no doubts, God is with you. God is here with you right now. God is not waiting for you to become better or do something different to come near you. God is right here. And this has been an extremely challenging year. It's not over yet, but hang in there. Hmm. Um Jesus is risen and God is on the throne and the Holy Spirit is closer than your next breath. Um, love each other, hmm. be graceful with each other. Um keep the faith.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, take what comes um, with patience for yourself because it's hard, yeah. and patience for each other because everyone is doing their best and praise the Lord at all times.
0: And that's a good word. you are listening to Catherine McNeil, author of All Shall Be Well and Long Days of Small Things. You can also go to her website, CatherineMcNeil.com. You can follow her on Twitter at CatherineMcNeil. Catherine, just to say it out loud, you are always such a joy to have on the show. I'm grateful for your voice and for your leadership and your writing. And uh, I know I agree with the rest of our audience to say we can't wait for this next book. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Our pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, teacher and writer Justin Gill will be joining us for the entire hour. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He is vacationing, or so I'm told. I haven't seen any proof of that yet, but uh, rumor has it he'll be back in the middle of next week. But in his absence, though, we have a whole smattering of really wonderful, very special guest hosts. And before we get to my next guest, a couple of particulars. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, we not only post all of our articles there, but you can send us messages if you have ideas for future shows. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get podcasts. And if you're a podcast in type and you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that silliness actually does help us out a whole ton. And uh, I'm really excited to have for the entire hour teacher and writer and my friend, Justin Gill. Welcome to the show, sir.
2: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: It's my pleasure, man. Would you just take uh, a couple of minutes and introduce yourself to everybody?
2: Uh, Yeah. So um, I uh, traveled up to Chicago not too long ago to do grad studies with uh, a guy named Dr. Scott McKnight. And uh, I'm originally from Southwest Missouri. I'm a true hillbilly that grew up on uh, farmlands and in the hills. Uh, And uh, I just... I went to Bible college, uh, for my undergrad and I studied the Bible, uh, there and decided to come study in Chicago with Dr. McKnight and help write books, um, out there.
0: Okay. So a question that I imagine for a lot of, at least like church and Bible nerds that somebody will want me to ask, what's it like working with Dr. McKnight, by the way?
2: Uh, it's really good. Uh, I call him Dr. McKnight all the time. A lot of people call him Scott. Uh, really? and uh, it, it really, uh, I, I don't know, it sets me off a little bit in the sense <laughs> that uh, I if I, I know if I called him Scott, I would get into this mode of just, this guy is my friend, because we do text message and email a lot, uh, and every now and then, even though I do call him Dr. McKnight all the time, I realize, like, oh, that's right, I'm working with Scott McKnight. Like, right. this guy is a big deal, and he's an amazing right. writer and everything, and I get to help him with this work, so... Uh, It is pretty amazing. He is a tour de force when it comes to work, uh, which Mm -hmm. has been great to learn from. I mean, he writes uh, two, three books a year, uh, and I've Mm -hmm. gotten to work with him on those uh, for the last six years. Uh, And so it's uh, it's a lot of work, and it's really enjoyable. uh, And putting that side by side with family and school uh, and and trying to do a little bit of work and stuff like that was uh, pretty overwhelming at times, but uh, amazing learning experience from a, a great man.
0: I can imagine we also co-authoring a commentary on First Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus with him, which I imagine. I, I gotta wonder though, like, what led you to this place in your life in the first place? Like, why why do you think that you're so fired up about this kind of work?
2: So, I, I would say uh, I, I grew up in churches that uh, what we did was study the Bible. So, hmm. uh, when I tell people, like, uh, I went to a, about a 300 person church, uh, we had a couple of services, and it, but it was out in the out, outside of a town, but we went mm-hmm. to church in the morning. We had Sunday school, and we went to church, and both of those were studying the Bible. And then that night, we had another Bible study, and we had another service, and those were both studying the Bible. And Wednesday nights, mm-hmm. we had dinner together, and we studied the Bible <laughs> for another Bible study. So wow. I, I grew up my wow. whole life studying the Bible was what church life was. And so um, you know, we did all the stuff like missions trips and uh, camp and things like that, which connected me to the Bible college. It was our Christian college that I ended up going to. Uh, for mm. undergrad, and going there, it just it opened up the world of the Bible uh, in a way that I, even though I'd studied the Bible literally my whole life, and I went to adult Bible studies even as a teenager, um, mm. I, I just I, I found it unbelievable that we could know so much about the world in which these texts were written in, and how much that world could teach us just by knowing that world and hearing those words within that world uh, to help us then begin to understand what it means to have a relationship with God as we hear those words in our world. And so I, I found it fascinating. And so to then get to study with somebody like Scott McKnight, who has made it his life goal to understand that world, to know the right. languages of that world and things like that, and bridge that into the church. Um, right. That's everything that I could hope for as a person who loves the local church and loves to serve it.
0: So this one's going to kind of tee you up a little bit, but what would you say to the person who's listening and they're thinking, do we really need more theology? Does scholarship actually matter? Shouldn't we just be loving people? Shouldn't we just be on mission or making things happen in our communities? Like, what would you say to the person who, who maybe they don't yet actually see the value of this like deep, robust study that you're like embedded in?
2: So I, you know, I, I have definitely understand that I'm a practical type of person in general. Right. I like to, right. to get things done. I like to affect things, uh, both of the church and uh, politics is fun to talk about uh, every now and then. Uh, but I, I think theology is so important and understanding um, the world of the Bible is so important because those are the things that shape what we are even saying we're trying to care about.
1: Hmm. How do
2: you love people without learning how to understand what love is uh, from hmm. God? And in, especially the West, our concepts of love are um, primarily derived from the Bible. And, you know They're romanticized and there's lots of history that comes into that. There's derivations, of course, but are just basic concepts that. Love is something that is a prime value, uh, comes from, from this idea in Christianity that love, sacrificing for others and giving yourself up for it is, is a value and a virtue, uh, to begin with. The idea that people are of value, uh, just inherently. This is a Christian mm. idea, uh, that their bodies matter. Things like that, uh, are derived from theology. And without a theology to undergird that, as much as I enjoy politi- you know, politics and, and those kinds of conversations, um, we can say those words, we can say that certain people matter or people have value and things like that. Without a theology, uh, we have no real reasoning or logic undergirding those kinds of things. And eventually, that's just a house of cards that'll fall apart.
0: Right, right. And and I, I know, actually, for a fact that you've taught a good deal at Community Christian Church where I'm at, you were teaching sort of a Bible 101 course for people that I imagine had a certain level of interest because they were there in the first place. But in your experience, what were some of the biggest hurdles to like helping people kind of unpack some of those things or, or having to sort of maybe poke at some of those infrastructures that people had held that weren't actually rooted in good scholarship? Like, what was that experience like for you teaching people at like this, this like one on one level?
2: Uh, that's one of my favorite places to teach, really? uh, is people that are just really interested in the Bible, but they don't really know where to go from that point. Right. Um, right. But I I would say probably the biggest hurdle uh, would be (laughs) uh, taking the Bible that they care about so much and they've learned how to kind of devotionally read it. When they read the text, the question for them is always, is God talking to me and what in my life when I go to work today or with my issues with my mom and my dad and stuff like that? It's supposed to, you know, how is this going to affect those things? And then trying to kind of widen that out and say, actually these words and these ideas had meaning uh, in the world when Paul was writing to people. And if we right. understand those ideas a little bit better, they might actually help those situations at work or with your mom or your dad and things like that. And, and in very surprising ways, it might surprise you uh, how powerful those are because it'll teach you right. how to live not just as an individual, but actually teach you how to live among the people of God and as a family uh, and then shape all the relationships that you have towards whether it's the government or our families or our work or our children or our husband's wives, things like that.
0: That's really good. I remember even in my undergrad, we had a, a project, it was a New Testament class, and um I forgot what the actual project was, but I remember our, our professor saying, I would not recommend choosing a passage that you really love, because taking a <laughs> yeah. deep dive into it, you're gonna find uh that this probably means something much different than what you've been told. And I <laughs> you're
2: gonna
0: get I, tore I, up. <laughs> totally. And I and I didn't listen and I picked one of my favorite verses and wept like a baby through the whole process. I was like, how did I not know this? I'm, I'm super grateful for that rigorous training now, even in undergrad, but yeah, it was a little traumatizing. Like, how did I not know this? You know, you mentioned like our go-to is to sort of read it devotionally, which is good and valuable for sure. But, uh, part of what kind of cards on the table I've loved about even our conversations is an opportunity to take a deeper dive into these things that, you know, a lot of times people don't know how to do, which is exactly what we're going to do for the remainder of the hour. We're going to take a deep dive into some of the things that Justin in particular really cares about as it pertains to theology, and that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. Fret not, he is coming back on Wednesday, but in his absence, I have a whole slew of really wonderful, special Guests, hosts who are sticking around an hour at a time, and it's been wonderful. It's going to continue to be wonderful. If you want to find us, we're on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get podcasts. And we have for the rest of this hour, my friend, teacher, and writer Justin Gill. We took a little bit of a deep dive into uh, theology and scholarship, but one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Justin, is this idea of engaging politically as as a Christ follower. What in your mind is the role of politics, and maybe more specifically? political engagement for the Christ follower?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really big question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think political theology or kind of the bridging of the relationship that the church has to governments is actually pretty key to some of the things that we do. Uh, As Mm -hmm. churches, I think the first and foremost question that the church always has to ask in any given situation, whether we're talking about, um, you know, like right now about violence issues or racism issues, um, I think that the local church has to begin to figure out um, its own theology and how it lives that theology in their local context. And as we begin to figure that out, how we actually live together, then we can have some sort of a voice towards larger social groups that are not necessarily the church but ways that we might offer some sort of um, at least way of thinking about race or violence or the Mm -hmm. way in which we're supposed to live together within a society um, that we can at least offer a Christian uh, concept to them at least and say, uh, this is the way we are thinking about this. And we're doing this within our communities of faith, our local communities of faith. We're going to live this way one way or the other with or without you, but we would love to offer some sort of uh, conversation language if you're going to ask us our opinion, this is what we're going to try to say. Um, I I think that the church in America has become very obsessed with larger national conversations and we've gotten swept up into that uh, too much. Mm -hmm. And we don't allow ourselves to have a local conversation almost at all. Um, And because of that, then we get kind of pulled into a voting block primarily for for a nation because we're too small to really just make the difference ourselves. Um, But I think the church has to get comfortable with the fact that our ethics and our way of life is a local and small thing again right. uh, and then maybe we can affect things that are larger than us
0: that's interesting so so what do you say to the person and i'm speaking on both sides of the coin here to the person that says uh to the pastor the church leader don't talk about politics just preach the gospel what, what do you what do you say to that person
2: well i mean the first thing is is uh, there's what the stock answer that says well theology is always political because Theology is always talking about how we love and care for one another. And politics right. is just a, a way in which we love and care for each other. Uh, there's a part of that that's true in the sense that uh, I, I would say this is where my focus is. I think the church needs to focus on how to live the gospel together first. Um, you can always have a preacher talk about his political opinions on the national front or on a state level or, or things that his, his favorite topics. You can always have somebody that does that. Um, but the focus of the preacher, or the pastor should be to help their particular congregation learn how to navigate those issues, uh, through scripture and through the addressing of the gospel and, to invite the Holy spirit into his people in his particular place and help mm-hmm. them live to address those issues. Now, those issues might be very evident in, in, in that context. Sometimes in a lot of contexts in the United States, those issues are not nearly, uh, as, as large or looming, uh, an immediate type of thing those churches still have to talk about those larger issues. They have to place them in the context of the gospel and the larger national conversations. Uh, but I think that the conversation for the most part for the pastor does need to be, how do I help my people live the life of the gospel? How do I help them live Jesus's life in their bodies in this time and in this place?
0: That's really good. One of the phrases that you kind of turn me on to that you, you talk about a lot when we would get coffee together is theological anthropology and I know that has a lot to do with like identity formation and how we actually like live together. Some of what you're just talking about there. Can, can you unpack that notion a little bit more for people that have, are maybe unfamiliar with it?
2: So, yeah. So anthropology, uh, just kind of the general idea of anthropology is kind of the study of people and right. their cultures and how they live together and things. Uh, theological anthropology is looking at people and how we are created and live together uh as people how do we have values and what gives us those intrinsic values for us mm-hmm. as christians uh theological anthropology is rooted in the resurrection so the mm-hmm. resurrection is the very thing that taught us uh, in, in the ancient world there was an idea that you know the soul could move between one body to the next you, know, you die it's similar to reincarnation uh mm-hmm. so that the body itself uh something that was unimportant uh it was just a, an expression of a time and a place that a soul lived in and so the body didn't matter and for Christians, one of the things that we realized after the resurrection in the early church was that Jesus's resurrected body means that the body is unified with the soul in such a way that the, the body matters, that the person as a whole matters. And when I hurt a person's body, I'm not just throwing away something that is uh, worthless and evil already. Uh, actually, no, there's intrinsic value. That's a, that's a part of that. And so from that thought process came the ideas of, of taking care of the sick. And not just letting them die, uh, taking care of children that were thrown away that, well, their bodies aren't what we wanted, whether they are little girls that Romans didn't didn't want or uh, maybe they have disabilities and and we can throw them away. Uh, Mm. And and, and so the church began to take care of people as bodies because of the resurrected body of Jesus. And so this resurrected and ascended body of Christ uh, taught us about human nature and who we are as people and the value that we have and how to then begin to take care of each other. And a lot of the things that Jesus said make sense only in light then of the idea of a resurrected person uh, that we can have relationship with people. Uh, and that really, really matters uh, because the way we treat people matters. The way we use our own bodies matter because yeah. Christ is a risen body.
0: That's really good. I remember years ago reading, I, I think it's from George MacDonald, who's this uh, Scottish minister and a, and a poet. And he said something like, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And I remember even the first time I heard that thinking, That's pretty dismissive, actually, of the body like you have it, but it isn't really a part of your identity in any way, shape or form. So who you really are is your soul, protect the soul and the body is sort of like along for the ride, I guess. Like, why do you think that kind of thinking is is dangerous?
2: Well, I think that kind of thinking is dangerous because um, it does dismiss um, human beings. I I think, and I can only say that just because of theological anthropology, only because of the resurrection. Uh, I I think that Jesus is the person that he is precisely because of the unity of the invisible God within him uh, and, and the body that we actually have a relationship to. And so when he's resurrected uh, it is his full self and every part of him is essential for us to have a relationship to God. Mm -hmm. And so if that's true, uh, then we can't throw away his body, you know, in his ascended state as he sits on the throne, you know, today, he is that human body. He is still that same human body. And so without that human body, we don't have the ability to interact with God. We don't have the ability to learn how to interact with each other. We don't actually know how to have life as humans without that, that human body. Uh, so to, mm-hmm. to, to, to throw that away then does a number of different things. I think let's, like, we can put it back into politics. Um, right. It's easy to say things like, um, well, I do care about black people, but I really care uh, that they're safe. Uh, my wife and I, when we first went to Bible college, we were thinking about being missionaries and we were thinking about being missionaries, uh, to Africa. And my great grandma, um, who, who she, one of the things that she says is, I'm really glad there are some people that are willing to go to places and, and, and to go to those kinds of people, um, mm-hmm. to love them because I know I sure don't. Uh, and the thought process in her head was she was making a Christian statement that, yeah, she cares about their souls and then going to heaven someday, but she doesn't care about them particularly. She doesn't really care about who they are now, and that was a that that to me I think is the the way that theology begins to separate things away. If you begin to not care about people's bodies, you can really not care about how they are treated in this world at all. But if you begin to unify our theology in the body of Christ, uh, then we begin to care about how we love people in this world as much as you know for the next world. right
0: right gosh that's so good that other voice you're hearing by the way is justin gill he's a teacher and a writer and uh, he's gonna be sticking around for the remainder of the hour here in brian's absence on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins normally joined by brian Fromm, he is out of here for now but fret not he will be returning mid next week but you can still find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is, you podcast. if you have a spare minute, subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that on any platform, helps us out a whole heap. And we're super grateful for those of you who have already done that. And while Brian is out, I have just a bunch of people that I really love and respect kind of taking an hour at a time to show with us some of their heart and their perspective and some of their learnings. And Justin Gill is not only a brilliant mind, but he's a teacher and a writer. And we've been talking a little bit about really the theology of the body, We're talking about politics and why theology matters. But something that I know personally about Justin is that he is what we call a sacramentalist. Before we take a deep dive into that, just explain briefly what a sacramentalist actually is.
2: So I, I would say that uh, a sacramentalist is a person who looks at uh, particularly the things that Jesus gave to us, such as like baptism uh, and communion or Eucharist uh, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, and sees those as not merely symbols. Now, they definitely are symbols. They're indicating something. But those symbols are, uh, for a sacramentalist, are filled up with the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit in a way that we interact with God and can receive some sort of blessing and transformation through his presence with that.
0: That's a good definition. All right, so what's been your experience with how – uh most predominantly the western church speaks of the eucharist communion the lord's table like what what do you think is like the predominant sort of overarching view that most people would hold
2: well i mean if we're going to talk about purely in numbers i mean i think there are more catholics than than protestants Gotcha. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. so definitely sacramentalists would, yeah. would win Touché. out in the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I think in our more, in our context, a lot more, uh, for Protestants, uh, for far and away, uh, a guy named Zwingli has been very influential where he was just kind of, he believed that these things were just symbols, symbols about things that would help us remind us about Jesus. Um, and that became really, really influential. Luther uh, and Lutherans kind of hold to a, a sacramental view. Um, there's a thing called real presence, and that's kind of what I was uh, talking about, that Jesus is really present with us when we do these things. He gave them to us, uh, mm. promised to be there and be a part of it, and so he's really, really there. Uh, that Lutheran view just kind of fell off. There was a lot of arguments between Lutherans and early Calvinists, and mm. Calvin, Calvinists went with Zwingli that this was more symbolic than anything. Um, so that's kind of why Protestants for the most part are just kind of symbol people, uh, and Catholics and Orthodox in the East um, uh, they're sacramentals.
0: So why do you think that particular topic is so important? I've heard you talk about this numerous times. Personally, you even drafted for me, like a multiple page, deep dive into really your personal perspective, but that, that in a lot of ways was helpful for me in kind of framing, even my own language, not to mention my posture. Like, why do you think this conversation in particular is so important?
2: Well, I think there's three reasons. Uh, I think that uh, scripture uh, definitely speaks to a sacramental view uh, of particularly Eucharist. I I wrote my thesis on Eucharist, so I'll probably focus primarily on on Eucharist. Uh, (laughs) But I think scripture speaks to this for sure. Um, I think that uh, theology speaks to it. And I think then... um, I think for the most part, the history of the church speaks to it. So um, what I would say is from scripture, it's hard to get around certain texts that uh, sound pretty crazy. You know, you have, you know, John six, and I, and I know people are like, well, that was before the Lord suffered. But when when you're talking about any of the gospels, these are written by apostles to Christians to remind them about Jesus. And so uh, whenever Christians got together, what did they do? Uh, They sang, they prayed, they ate a meal, like the Eucharist meal, and they read scriptures and they taught each other. And right. so for, for the gospel writer to focus in on a story of Jesus where he specifically says, I'm the bread of heaven. I've come down. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And unless you are doing this, you do not you know, have eternal life. For Christians right. who are in a church that are constantly doing these practices, there's no way that the apostle teaching them, you know, John teaching them this isn't going to connect to the very thing that they do every time they're together. It's just not possible, Mm. especially when that thing that they do together, they say every single time, like Paul says, they recite that on the night the Lord was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body and this is my blood for you. You know, it's just, it's kind of inconceivable to say that that's going to be separated. The stories of Jesus would be separated from the life we live together as a community. Mm. So for me, that's just one scriptural example. Uh, But I think theology demands this. I think that if you don't really believe that God uh, in flesh in Jesus is the creator God. Um, I I could accept this a little bit more. And what I mean by that is when God who is in flesh says, this is my body, this is my blood. I'm really going to be here in this in some way. I'm not going to tell you exactly how I do it, but, but, but I'm going to be here with you. Uh, if God isn't allowed to actually transform creation, I don't know how we believe we're really transformed by the presence of the spirit in our life. Hmm. Uh, so for me, the thought process is, is with you, Chris, this is, a, this is a simultaneous reflection of who we are. He gives us something in which he transforms, and he blesses us with his own presence and transforms us. If we don't believe that God can do this as the creator and as within his own presence, then I don't know how we believe that he's able to do that. Do we not believe we're different, even in our very bodies? that we're different by the presence of the Holy Spirit being in us and with us as a people. Uh, If we don't believe that we're really different, okay? And I think some theologies really don't believe we're different. I think that they just think that Jesus is seen and we're not really there. We're really just sinners, just barely saved. If we're not really being transformed, I get that a little bit. Uh, And I think that's actually where it works into our theologies and the way we treat people. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, the separation of the body and kind of the soul. Uh, Protestants fall into that a little bit more because they kind of think Well, Jesus saves me spiritually, and when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, but in my life and who I am and my body, I'm still just this sinner and worthless person. I'm not really being transformed. I'm just going to kind of get the benefits of Jesus, and I think that's completely wrong. I think that God actually wants to be a part of our lives and transform us and change us and change who we are, and I think that that is reflected in his own gift of himself through the sacraments. Gosh,
0: that's beautiful, man. I'd be curious to know your thoughts regarding—I've seen a lot of people as of late, and I don't know if it's— fully in the category of trendy yet but a lot of people have been writing lately it seems that historically from for much of the church's history the table was actually central to the gathering and then somewhere like most of us have probably experienced the sermon really is the center it's it's sort of like the culmination right is the everything else sort of pointing toward that do you want agree that man historically the the table was central and two what do you think is lost when the table isn't central
2: well, I think, I think I mean, yes, throughout, throughout history, the table has been a central part. In fact, reading scripture and singing and all this kind of stuff was a preparation, uh, a right. reminder, a bringing our minds into focus for a particular moment at the table. Well, what was that particular moment? Well, that particular moment is to meet Jesus, is to be with Jesus uh, in, a, in a massively profound way within creation, not just in some spiritual sense, but fully in, in water and in bread and in, and in wine to, to interact with him in some physical way, whatever that means. Uh, I was listening to, uh, William Kavanaugh spoke at Northern Seminary to a group of um, of, of, of Protestants, uh, William mm. Kavanaugh is a Catholic, and, and he, and the Protestants asked him, how do we get people to care more about the liturgy in our churches? And Kavanaugh just kind of dropped his head and he smiled and he said, mm. you know, I understand why people think that the liturgy is beautiful, but I'm going to tell you the truth. If I didn't think that the blazing center of my faith was actually interacting with Jesus in Eucharist. Mm. Why would I care about all the pretty things that are supposed to prepare me for it? If I don't actually believe that I'm meeting Jesus, then why Mm. would I care about how pretty the songs are or how pretty the building is or, or any of these kinds of things? They're preparing me for something that never happens. I have to believe that it's preparing me for something. And so that, that was his, that was his response that we have to believe that we're actually interacting with Jesus or this stuff isn't really preparing us for anything.
0: Wow. That's so good. That voice you're hearing, by the way, is Justin Gill. He's both a writer, a teacher, a theologian, a researcher. And uh, coming up next, why not? We're going to talk about a theology of sex. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. We are at the home stretch, the final segment. And uh, you probably know it by now that my co-host, Brian Fromm, is on vacation. What you may not know is that our producer, John actually playing organ at Wrigley tonight for uh, for opening day. And so we're super proud of him, super grateful for him. And uh, if you're watching at all, any organ playing is actually happening by our very own producer. And uh, feel free to cheer him and give him some, uh, some love on social media if you see fit. You can also find us online, Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, blah, 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 blah. You know the rigmarole. But with our final segment here, uh, writer, teacher, theologian, scholar—my friend Justin Gill. I teed it up a little bit a second ago. I'm not even really going to ask a question. I'm just going to say this: a theology of sex. Go.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I think a theology of sex is um, drastically needed, uh, mm. particularly in the American church right now. I, I think that. We've known for a very long time that our culture has an obsession with sex and sexuality. Uh, And again, I think our churches are really allured by American culture more than living together, um, the gospel in a local church. And so we've run into some major issues. And I think that um, our issues, particularly over the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, as the church has grappled with homosexuality, has proven one thing. And that is that the church, particularly the church in America, possibly the church in the West doesn't have much of a theology of sex in general to be mm. able to then even leverage into a conversation about homosexuality or uh, that we're beginning to see now, uh, polyamory, uh um, multiple people in a marriage or, um, you know, why, what is the purpose of marriage uh, at all? What's the purpose of sex? Why even have limits on this in any sense whatsoever,
0: uh, mm. which
2: plays into some major American virtues like libertarianism. I can do what I want when I want without uh, permission or consequence. Um, mm as long as it doesn't seem to be harming somebody as, you know, that's fine. And that's a very high American virtue that I think a lot of the church has taken in. And that really kind of works against defining a theology of sex. Hmm.
0: So, so why do you think it is one that there's such a a vacancy, like even when you were talking earlier about a theology of the body, a quick Google search will reveal that there's actually not a lot of evangelical voices speaking to it. It's kind of hard to find work scholarly work in particular on that subject matter. And it feels like a theology of sex is the same way. Why do you, why do you think that is like, why, why is that vacancy existed for so long?
2: I think that vacancy existed actually because, um, the church, uh, conquered the West. Actually. I I think Mm. that, um, Mm. for the most part, um, we conquered the ancient Roman pagan world. And and, and what I mean by that is when the Bible is written with Paul uh, and, and around even, you know, the time of Jesus, uh, the Jews at that time were dealing with rampant homosexuality within, within Rome. Uh, lots of uh, promiscuous sexual behavior, both by men and women. Um, the way in which they ab- aborted children, they aborted children if they just didn't want to have children. But, you know, if they didn't want girls, um, the way they saw a theology of the body was that girls were just deformed males, and so right. being that they were just deformed males, they threw away those, those females and it created an imbalance that there was like 70% males in Rome and there was only 30% women. And wow. so homosexuality was a very common thing in which actually men did get married uh, and, and, and live their lives in that, in that kind of way. And the church was having to address that issue. Well, eventually the church conquered uh, the Roman world and our norms, our sexuality norms that come from, from Judaism – took over the world. And the idea that it was just you were married to one person, uh, you had sex with that one person as much as possible, and all other kinds of sex is deemed non viable, just became the pervasive reality of the West. And so I think that it just became the assumed cultural reality that we existed, and we didn't have to articulate it, we didn't have to have a theology of it. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so it's taken the church by surprise that we would ever have to articulate again, because it's been like this for so many centuries.
0: Right, right. One of the things that's always painfully clear to me on this show and segments like this is we have such a limited time together. But so you've covered a lot of ground regarding Eucharist, theology of sex, theology of body uh, and anth- anthropology, politics off the top of your dome. I didn't really prepare you for this question, so forgive me. But like what, what are some books that you would recommend people check out to take a deeper dive on, on some of the stuff that you've been talking about today?
2: Well, I, I would definitely say uh, one of them I, I, that I think is actually a really good book is, is Love Thy Body uh, by Nancy Piercy. I, I mm-hmm. thought that was a, actually a really good book that she assesses kind of where we are as an American evangelical culture and, and the things that we're dealing with. Um, I think that's a really good book. There are there are a lot of scholars on this, but the reality is, is scholarship is torn uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to the Bible because scholarship recognizes... the, uh, the stringent sexual demands that Paul as a Jew and the early church had on Christians. There was a lot of demand on the bodies of Christians to conform Mm. sexually. Uh, and it was looked at as an extreme, uh, cult group because Mm. we put so much emphasis on human sexuality in the early centuries. Uh, they thought we were crazy because how much we focused on sex. Um, and so that is something that scholars all know. The question for most scholars is, is do we want to deal with trying to call Christians back to that way of life? Hmm. Do we even want to bother with it? Uh, Is it something we should even be bothered with? I mean, that's really where scholars really are kind of waffling. Uh, It's not a question of really what the Bible says or even what the world was like back then. But the question is really, do we demand this of Christians now? Does scripture uh, demand that of of Christians today?
0: Hmm. How, How do you answer that question?
2: Well, as a Bible guy, uh, I think that the Bible is the thing that teaches us how to live the gospel. And so I think that being that that world uh, was rampant with what, as Christians, we consider sexual immorality, um, ways of life that are very similar to the ways of life that the American culture is promoting and giving approval to, um, they understood that. They understood that world. Uh, And it's a world that I think we're just now beginning to enter back into. I think there's a lot of things that we as Christians need to accept and learn from the early church that they were battling sexuality issues and they were battling, uh, how, how to have families and, and how to take care of people and overcoming ethnicity, strife and things like that. Mm. They were Mm. battling over those kinds of things in a way that we are just now being willing to talk about openly and willing to begin to push and say, we as a community of faith have to address these issues, number one, but number Mm. two, we have to live them together. Uh, and there's a lot of wisdom, I think that we could learn from them.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I I want to take just sort of like a quick hard right turn. We only have a couple of minutes left, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask kind of the impossible, but if you're in the church world at all, pastoral, theological, scholarly, whatever, you've probably heard a lot about uh the new perspective on Paul. I know you have opinions about this. Could you give us just a a lightning speed flyover? What like what are what are we actually talking about when we hear people talk about this this new perspective on Paul?
2: Uh, Well, you know, it's actually I think it's a relatively easy concept in the sense that the new perspective on Paul wanted to look at Paul as a Jew within Judaism in the first century. Uh, And so it's getting to know Paul as he would have been a Jew. Uh, He's a Pharisee. He was he he was he was trained. Yes, he had a little bit of Greco-Roman education in that. Uh, but for the most part, he was trained in his synagogue by, it seems like, a, a semi-wealthy family that was able to pay for him to go to Jerusalem and gain an unbelievable education there to become a leader of the, uh, of the people of God. And so he uh, was very educated, and he was educated specifically in Jewish literature and in the Old Testament. And that is what saturates all of his writings and all the things that we read when he has interactions with his churches. He is a mm-hmm. Bible-believing Jew who believes that Jesus makes sense of the entire Old Testament and everything that God has ever done with Israel. And therefore, because what God has done in Jesus for Israel, the world can be saved through the kingdom of God, uh, the people of God. Uh, And so I think that that's really the the nutshell of what the the new perspective is, understanding uh, understanding Paul uh, within his Jewish context and allowing that to really inform us about what he is saying in his letters.
0: Gosh, that's so good, man. I predicted it when we began. We had no problem filling four segments. But just <laughs> say it out loud, man. I am uh, super grateful, not just for you, but your, for your family. You guys are like family to us and we love you guys. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for you taking the time to be with us today, man. Thanks for doing this.
2: Hey, well, thank you for having me. And uh, we really miss being in Chicago just to get to hang out and talk with you.
0: Well, the feeling is definitely mutual, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, that not only concludes today, but this week. But we hope that you'll join us again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. or on the podcast. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Good on AM eleven sixty.